1757, Frederick the Great of Prussia issued an edict allowing for marriages to be absolved on the grounds of serious, continuous hostility without having to apportion the guilt to any one party. It's the very first example we have in history of what we might call a no-fault divorce. And that, of course, is now common practice throughout the world. No-fault divorce. Another example of a societal law that runs contrary to biblical teaching. It is, in its essence, not that far removed from what the Pharisees had been teaching in Jesus' day. Here, in these two verses, Jesus corrects his disciples' understanding of divorce when and when it was not permitted, undermining the ministry of the Pharisees, and we just marvel at the consistency of God's word as Jesus sought to undermine the Pharisees' teaching, so God's word comes to us and undermines society's view of divorce. Are there grounds upon which a Christian might get divorced? Yes, and we'll look at those today. But more than anything, Christ upholds the sanctity of marriage in these two verses. He impresses upon us that the marital union is to be exclusive and permanent between one man and one woman, and that we should affirm that sanctity. As you come here today, It might be that your understanding of marriage and in turn of divorce is not aligned with the biblical text. It might be that you need to submit to God's word this morning and change your understanding of when a divorce is permitted and when it is not. But I imagine for most here, you already ascribe to what the Bible teaches concerning marriage and divorce. And in that sense, the exhortation that flows out of these two verses for you is to yet more fully affirm and celebrate and practice the sanctity of the marital union. And I pray, as we have already asked God this morning, that this church would be one that celebrates every biblical marriage. That this church would continually fix our eyes on the wonder of God's plan in bringing together a man and a woman, and we would do all that we can to celebrate that union and to practice it. Now, that Sentence that I used many times last week, and I'll use again this week, that a marriage is to be a permanent and exclusive relationship between one man and one woman actually serves us well for working through these two verses. My outline this morning is simple, two points. First, thinking about the permanency of marriage, and then the exclusivity of marriage, 
And with both in view, we can understand what exactly Jesus was teaching. So beginning then by considering the permanency of marriage and Jesus' words in verse 31, Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, I've said in the last few weeks what Jesus is doing in this section on the uh, Sermon on the Mount is not seeking to run contrary to or undermine Moses. Rather, the interpretation of the Mosaic Law and its application is what Jesus is pushing back on. In the last two weeks, Jesus has quoted verbatim from the biblical text. This week, we see that point more clearly as he doesn't quote any one scripture word for word. That's what helps us to understand that Jesus is actually pushing back the prevalent teaching of the day, not the scripture itself. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's summarizing the prevalent teaching of the day on divorce that certainly did have a scripture in view. The scripture that the Pharisees would have gone to and lent upon in order to teach on divorce is Deuteronomy 24. Now, because the law there in Deuteronomy 24 is fairly complex, we would do well to turn there and just to spend a few minutes this morning considering what the Old Testament teaches about divorce to see how the Pharisees had distorted that Old Testament teaching and how Jesus simply upholds it. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, we read of a hypothetical scenario. Text reads, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. If she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. It is a hypothetical scenario where two divorces are actually brought into view, possibly an initial divorce, and then the woman goes to marry a second time, and perhaps a divorce there. She cannot go back to the first husband. The Old Testament law can be quite difficult for us to understand. Perhaps the most important point any time you read the Old Testament law, the most important point for you to hold in view is that it is an expression of God's love for his people. Do not think the Old Testament law was intended to create a burden to be carried by God's people in the Old Testament Israel. It was an expression of his grace towards them. 
God had already shown himself to be a saving, loving God as he drew them out of Egypt. And then he brings them into this covenant relationship. He promises to them the land and he issues the law. And the law was intended to be for them the roadmap by which they would flourish in their relationship with God in the land. The law was never meant to create a burden for them to carry. It's an expression of his love. With that being said, there are, within the law, clear prohibitions. There are clear commands to do certain things. And there are, from time to time, laws that do neither prohibit nor permit, but simply regulate. Oftentimes, within what we call the Torah, there are laws that portray certain scenarios that God anticipated would come about in the land. As you live your lives in the land in relationship with me, if this particular scenario should arise, here's how you are to respond. Here's how you are to regulate behavior in that particular context. And Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, is one such law. The point is, this law that we just read does not seek to permit or condone divorce. The intent of this law is simply to regulate its practice. Even there, we see an expression of God's love. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read God hates divorce, Malachi chapter 2. The intent of this law was not to permit it nor condone it, But God, being a gracious God, acknowledged that his people would, from time to time, undergo divorce. And he says, out of a heart of love for them, when that happens, even now, though I hate divorce, let me give to you a law by which to regulate the practice of it in the land. It is intended to hold back further damaging scenarios. In this particular case, the care that God is expressing is aimed towards the woman. He doesn't want her to be passed around from one husband to the next. And so, we understand Deuteronomy 24 is not intended to permit or condone, but to regulate divorce. And it would seem that in Jesus' days, the Pharisees had distorted the intent of the text. They had distorted it in at least two ways. The first being, they had used this text to give permission. It would seem that amongst the many debates that the Pharisees went on record as having had, one of them was when a divorce was permitted and they would appeal to this text, seeking to do with the text something that God never intended it to accomplish. They had used this text incorrectly to create permission for divorce, failing to see it was really there just to regulate life when a divorce had happened. More than that, as they gave permission for divorce, they would do so oftentimes very liberally, too freely, 
Notice in verse 1, we read, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That's a word, the word indecency there, that commentators write much about because they're not agreed as to its meaning. What exactly has the man found? Unlikely does it actually refer to adultery. There are other laws that speak of a stoning to death when adultery has been committed. It speaks of some other failure, but we don't know exactly what. And so there's a whole spectrum of interpretations within rabbinic literature. Some rabbis would hold a very, very high standard. Others would be very, very liberal in permitting a divorce. In one case, if the wife burnt the food of her husband when cooking dinner, he was now permitted to divorce her. And certainly not all the Pharisees would apply it that liberally, but there was a spectrum. And so Jesus is picking up on the prevalent teaching of the day and correcting it showing that the text itself to which they were appealing was not meant to give permission or condone, but simply regulate divorce in the land. Now just consider, if that were the prevalent teaching of the day on marriage and divorce, how much that begins to undermine your estimation of the sanctity of marriage. Just consider if you're in a society wherein the prevalent teaching from those in a position of authority, you not necessarily having access to the law itself, but fully dependent on the teaching of these men, you hear the consistent message that marriage does not need to be permanent. Consider how in your heart that begins to undermine your estimation of just how sanctified God intends the marital union to be, not least in its permanency. Certainly, you would affirm with your lips that every marriage should be a lifelong relationship. At the Marriage ceremony itself, Genesis 2, would have been read, and yet somewhere lingering in the public consciousness, there is an understanding that if things don't go well in this relationship, there's an option to break out from it. If somehow this turns out to be a mistake, it's okay because divorce is on the table. It can be pursued if it turns out this isn't the wisest of choice. Think about how it undermines the trust within a marriage. We thought about this last week as we looked at Jesus' teaching on lust, and it's not incidental that the very next paragraph deals with divorce. There is a progression of thought in Jesus' teaching here. Last week we saw his teaching on lust, And how the marital union is to form a relationship of the utmost trust. Wherein a man and a woman can be naked and not ashamed. 
where a man can fully give himself to the woman and the woman fully to the man and they trust one another because they both affirm the permanency of that relationship. And now in Jesus' day, this prevalent teaching that divorce is an option, it's out there if things don't go well and that erodes the trust within a marriage. You hold back from giving yourself to your spouse because you don't know if he or she intends to be in this forever. Imagine how it starts to permit the idea of lust itself. If divorce is an option, why do I need to fight the lustful, sinful inclinations in my heart If I see someone outside of my marriage who my eyes like and my heart is wandering towards, why not pursue those thoughts and even pursue that relationship because I've become bored with this one and now divorce is an option? You see how the prevalent teaching of the day was undermining at every level the sanctity of marriage, not least in its permanency. And we laugh at the idea of a man divorcing a woman because she burnt his dinner, but note we are far worse in our view of marriage. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, we now practice as a society no fault divorce. If only you had to give a reason such as burning the dinner. That is not even required now. Anything is permissible by which you would pursue a divorce. You don't have to state the reason or have a party that is attributed with the guilt. And so in the same way, the sanctity of marriage is undermined in our society. Again, as you come here this morning, it might be that you have not heard Jesus' teaching on divorce and You need to correct your thinking on it. The laws that are upheld in society are insufficient. They're not biblical. They don't align with Jesus' teaching. And perhaps you need to change your view of marriage and divorce this morning. My guess is, for most, you already ascribe to Jesus' teaching and the Bible's teaching that every marriage ought to be permanent. You're already there with Christ as his disciples that there should be a permanency to every marriage. And so from Jesus' correction, for you there is an implicit exhortation to yet more fully affirm and yet more fully celebrate and yet more fully practice the permanency of every marriage. To yet more fully affirm, celebrate and practice the permanency of your own marriage. To be a champion in this day for the sanctity of marriage. How do you do that Practically, I would say it begins by frequently rehearsing the connection between your marriage and that of Christ with the church. 
Again, we thought about this last week. We've talked about it already today. Marriage is intended to have a symbolic value. It is meant to be a signpost that points us to the eternal marriage of Christ and the church. And so, to begin with, be in the discipline of frequently rehearsing in your own mind and heart the relationship between your marriage and the eternal marriage which it is intended to represent. Think often about the fact that Christ was so steadfast in his love towards the church, so faithful in his love towards the church, that he went to the cross to die on her behalf. He was not wavering in his love, but he exhibited the permanency of that union by dying for the church whom he came to save. And as you think upon the wonder of the gospel, specifically as it relates to the doctrine of marriage, so then let that inform the way you go about your marriage. The doctrine of Christ being wed to his church is supposed to inform the way in which you conduct yourself in marriage. 10, 20, 30 years in. You once upon a time said, I do. And on that day back then, you would have moved heaven and earth to show your spouse just how much you love her. On that day, there was nothing that could have gotten in the way of you articulating and demonstrating your love for your spouse. And it should be no different today. You practice the permanency of marriage by fulfilling your role in exactly the same manner today as you did on the very first day of your marriage. If you are 50 years into this marriage, praise the Lord and be the husband that you were on day one. Show yourself to be one who is utterly committed to this relationship until the Lord takes you to glory. Not because you are necessarily full of the same emotions and excitement as you were on that wedding day. We're not the same giddy kids that we were when we first got married. There has been, rightly so, a maturing of your love for one another. And it is now less fueled by feelings and emotion. It is now more prosaic in nature and that is entirely appropriate. But your commitment to the ongoing nature of your relationship is not grounded in an emotion or a feeling. It is grounded above all things by your view of the sanctity of marriage. I made a commitment to you. And it reflects the commitment that Christ has made to his church. And for that reason, I'm not stepping away from this. 
I will practice the permanency of marriage until Christ calls me home. That is Jesus' first teaching, his correction. And with that, we might ask, are there any exceptions to this? And the answer is yes. And so we turn back to Matthew 5, and we see... Jesus goes on in verse 32 to say, but I say to you, there's the emphatic statement, we see it every week, the teaching of the day by the Pharisees, Jesus seeks to undermine and correct. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In point one, we brought into view the permanency of marriage. In this second point, I want to think about the exclusivity of marriage by way of what Jesus teaches here. Now, as we've done in the last few weeks, it's important to clarify what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not, first and foremost, here advocating for divorce. Again, Malachi 2, God hates divorce. In fact, later on in this gospel, in Matthew 19, Jesus will teach again this teaching on divorce, and there he will say, what God has brought together, let not man separate. Jesus is not advocating for, in favor of divorce here. Now, that has implications. If you ever come to me, or any of the pastors in this church, seeking our support for your divorce, Our permission, we won't grant it. We can't be in favor of something that God hates. The very best we can do is to examine as to whether it is a biblical divorce, and if so, to acknowledge, simply to acknowledge that this would be biblical. If it's not a biblical divorce and you yet pursue it, We would then bring you under into the process of church discipline because it would be a sin. Jesus is not in favor of divorce. Secondly, Jesus' teaching in verse 32 is not intended to be exhaustive on the topic of divorce. He brings into view a case study, as it were. It gives to us a principle. We apply that principle in our lives. Elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we read a second reason by which a biblical divorce can be pursued, that is abandonment by an unbeliever. It's also important to say Jesus is not prohibiting marriage after divorce necessarily. I'm looking here at the very 
last part of verse 32 when he says, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As ever, context is key. The divorced woman in view there is the one that was divorced on unbiblical grounds. He's not prohibiting absolutely marriage after divorce. So what is Jesus doing? He is giving one of the two grounds for biblical divorce. One in 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment by an unbeliever, Lord willing, one day in the life of this church will be there and we'll talk about it then. Here, the other biblical grounds by which a divorce can be pursued, and that is sexual immorality. Now, as I say that, if you've ever studied this text, you may be aware that there is an interpretive issue that surrounds it. And the interpretive issue, very simply stated, is that as this teaching is recorded by Mark and by Luke in their Gospels, the exception clause is omitted. So in Mark 10 and Luke 18, you can look those passages up this afternoon, Jesus teaches there about divorce and there is no exception clause. In Mark 10 and Luke 18, it would seem that Jesus' teaching on divorce is absolute. It is an absolute prohibition. Never is there any grounds. So it creates a problem, a tension that scholars wrestle with. And one view that people take is that the teaching as it's found in Mark and Luke is the true teaching And would it be Matthew or those that came after Matthew added to the teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount? They took it upon themselves to add an exception clause. Jesus didn't speak it, but it was a softening of Jesus' teaching by those that came after. That creates a problem, especially as it relates to our view of Scripture. And I do believe that the proper understanding of Jesus' teaching is that he does give an exception clause, namely sexual immorality is a grounds by which you can pursue divorce. Now, how do you reconcile that with Mark and Luke's recordings of Jesus' teaching? Every gospel author has his own goals. The theology of each individual gospel is slightly different. And I do believe in Matthew in Mark and Luke's contexts, the exception clause was presumed to be understood already. The crowd to whom Jesus was speaking on that day understood that the exception clause was inherent to his teaching and therefore it either wasn't stated by Christ or it wasn't recorded by Mark or Luke. Matthew gives it to us in its fullest sense, including the one grounds that Jesus speaks of upon which a divorce may be pursued. I'm confident of that, in part, again, because of our high estimation of Scripture. We don't ascribe to the notion that these Scriptures were passed on and then changed, but we have in our hands this morning the words as they were originally written, But also, I'm confident of that interpretation by appealing to the theology 
of marriage. When a man and a woman come together, they form one flesh. There's lots of things happening on the wedding day. The minister pronounces them husband and wife, and they are in that moment married. They sign a certificate, and through signing it, they are married. And then they consummate their marriage by way of physical intimacy. And with reference to that physical intimacy, what God teaches us in Genesis chapter 2 is that the man and the woman come together and they form one flesh. In that sense, marriage is radically unlike any other earthly relationship. The man and the woman are closer than any mother with her child, than any friendship, than any familial relationship. Marriage is different because husband and wife form one flesh. And Jesus says, do not pull apart what man has brought, what God has brought together. Now, when one of the relationship commits sexual immorality, it is as if they are bringing a knife to their one flesh union. And they are hacking away at it in order to form a new one flesh union. When adultery is committed and assault is waged on the union that exists between a man and a woman in order to form a new one flesh union. And that is only true with the act of sexual immorality. This is where we understand last week when Jesus taught to us about lust, lusting of the heart, though a sin is not tantamount to severing that relationship, but physical sexual immorality is. And so with that theology in view, what Jesus is saying here is not so much granting permission to sever the union. He is simply acknowledging what the unfaithful partner has already done. He says there is one grounds in which the divorce is permitted, that of sexual immorality. Why? Because when that happens, the unfaithful partner has already severed the one flesh union. What the divorce does there is not grant permission to go ahead and break it. It acknowledges that it has been broken. And so you understand through Jesus' teaching, though certainly he is giving art grounds by which divorce can be pursued and not be a sin in God's eyes, more than that, he is upholding the absolute exclusivity of marriage. More than creating the one path by which 
Divorce can be pursued and not be rendered a sin before God. He is upholding the exclusive nature of marriage. And this would have astounded those in Jesus' day. Again, I don't know if you come here having never heard such teaching before. If you recognize this morning that your view of marriage and in turn of divorce is not aligned with Jesus' teaching, you need to submit to the text. But for the most part, I imagine you come already ascribing to what Jesus teaches here. So the exhortation again is that you and I would yet more affirm yet more celebrate and yet more practice the exclusivity of marriage. How? By bringing to mind the relationship of Christ and the church and informing your own heart of that relationship. Christ was exclusive in his exercise of saving love. He is not chosen to save the whole world, but he died on the cross for his elect. And you are the recipient this morning. If you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you are a recipient of that exclusive love. The world benefits from the grace of God, what we often refer to as his common grace. The world benefits from a type of love but not the exclusive saving love that the children of God know every single day Christ is permanent and consistent in his exercise of this exclusive love before you. So much so that he walked to the cross willingly on your behalf to make a payment for your sins. And so this morning, your marriage needs to be informed by that theology. Bring to mind the truth of the gospel and see the connection that scripture makes between those saving truths and your marriage. And then practice the utmost exclusivity. There should be a love that you exercise towards your spouse that no one else receives from you. It should be a unique, a distinct love that no one else gets to experience from you. The Lord knows how much I love my children. But the love they receive from me is different from the love that Laura would know in so much as God would give me the grace to be a faithful husband. It is an exclusive kind of love. Guard your marriage. Do not be lazy. Do not be half-hearted in your diligence to protect your marriage. Put up guards around it so that no one else may get in to that marriage. You don't get to treat everyone in the way that you treat your spouse. It is to be a unique relationship in your life. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your spouse more than you pray for anyone else. Upholding them before the Lord, rehearsing your love for them to God. So as to practice the exclusive nature of your marriage. If you're single, this application is for you also. 
This is not just a sermon for those that are in the marital union. If you're single, you too also affirm and celebrate the exclusive nature of marriage and practice it in so much as you keep yourself. You don't give yourself to anyone. You keep yourself for the person whom God has ordained for you. That is the exclusive practice of marriage in your life. If you're here this morning as a divorcee, if you recognize that your divorce was not in line with Jesus' teaching, there is forgiveness to be found at the cross. You, this morning, can affirm and celebrate and practice the sanctity of marriage by acknowledging your sin before God and seeking His grace. If your divorce was indeed biblical in line with what the Scriptures teach, there is healing available at the cross and much blessing to be found as you come to Christ with whatever damage that divorce may have caused in your life, there is a healing that Christ gives to you through the cross. And as we step back and consider again just the reality that even today there may be many marriages in this church represented here this morning that are not where they ought to be. This is, in one sense, a very hard and lofty teaching from Christ. Again, not suggesting that you are considering divorce, but you maybe think it would be the easier option. Marriage is a sanctifying ground for everyone. If your marriage is not where it ought to be this morning, Christ here through these two verses is calling you to persevere. He upholds the sanctity of marriage through his teaching on divorce and it is to be to us a call to persevere. To, by God's grace, find marriage to be the joy of life. How do we persevere? How might this church be full of healthy, God-honoring marriages? One commentator said, for any marriage to persevere, it needs to be founded upon a thick Christianity. A thick Christianity, meaning... Above all things, Christ truly is the center of your marriage. It's not something you merely say because you know you ought to say it, but there is a deliberate and a real centering of your relationship on the Lord Jesus on a daily basis. A thick Christianity means you do not take lightly the role of this book in your home. It is opened and it is red. A thick Christianity means you do not take lightly the place of prayer in your home. You pray for one another and you pray with one another because God has designed that to be a means of grace to you. 
Thick Christianity means you do not take lightly the role of the church in your marriage. Whenever I give pre-marital counseling, I lead by saying the truth is you don't know what it is to be married and much of what I say right now will go in one ear and out the other. You guys just want to be there on the wedding day. But listen, and if you can remember one thing I say, I tell them, on the other side of the wedding day, when you are now husband and wife, do not be strangers in the church. Don't disappear off the map. We don't want to be wondering where on earth you are, in part because your marriage is designed to be a blessing to the church. Don't be selfish with one another. Your marriage is designed to be a blessing to those around you. But so also, so also you need the church. You desperately need the support, the love, the care, the grace of the church in order to have a healthy marriage. If you're here this morning and you are a stranger, People don't know much about you. You have not been vulnerable with one another. You have not allowed your marriage to find its place within this church. Let me encourage you towards that. May God bless this church by esteeming in our hearts the sanctity of marriage. And may we practice its permanency and its exclusivity until Christ returns. Pray with me now to close. Father, we're grateful for Jesus' teaching on divorce. It is a difficult topic. It is a sad reality in our world. Father, we seek your forgiveness from just how far we have fallen as a society. So far from the biblical teaching on divorce, it is so prevalent around us with so little estimation concerning the sanctity of this union. We marvel afresh this morning at your plan in bringing man and woman together to form one flesh. And I do pray that our thinking about marriage would be honoring to you in line with Scripture's teaching. Help us to understand the grounds upon which Scripture does allow for divorce, but even more than that, Father, teach our hearts to esteem the sanctity of marriage. Yet more, may we affirm, celebrate, and practice the permanence and the exclusivity of the marital union in our own lives, in our own marriages, and in the marriages around us. Help us to be faithful encouragers, faithful 
to come alongside every husband and wife and continually point one another along the biblical path, your plan for marriage. And as we affirm and celebrate and practice the wonderful sanctity of that relationship, may we ever cast our minds towards the marriage, that of Christ and his church, with that eternal relationship inform our conduct. In this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.